You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening is from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go, you go, and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray now that we would understand your word, that we would um, just consume it, that you, by your spirit, would make this seemingly clear parable, uh, more real into our hearts, our minds, our soul, and even our strength. And we pray all these things for Jesus' sake and for our own joy. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Tonight is a lower elementary night and a torch night. Yes? Yes, both. Both and. So if you have a sticker on, you're a lower elementary kid, this is half the building moving out. Uh, You can head on out. And then if you're a torch kid, a fourth through sixth grader, and want to talk about this passage in Luke 10, the Good Samaritan. We'll see you later and look forward to hearing what you have learned. Well, good good evening, everyone. My name is Nathan. If I haven't met you tonight, let's go, kids. Let's go. Keep it moving. We're glad you are here this evening, as Kyle mentioned. Uh, If you're in town here for Fiesta, welcome to Albuquerque. Welcome to Christ Church. We're glad you're with us. We have been moving slowly through the book of Luke, and we are glad to be to this very famous story. Have you ever noticed that on most Sundays, uh, when I welcome you, just like I did, I then kind of move into like a, a brief story, a story by way of introduction. Not every Sunday. I didn't really tell a story. Last week, we kind of just got straight into it, but why do I do this? Why do, why do I generally begin with a story? 
Uh, it's not because I learned that like trick in some preaching class and it's like the formula that you have to start a sermon with a story, but we all do this. I think preachers just kind of intuitively know to like get attention, to gain attention, uh, stories are really effective. We are people of stories. When we sit down for dinner with our roommates or with our spouses, with our kids, and we ask, hey, how was your day today? We don't really necessarily mean like, tell me some facts about your emotions from the day. Tell me some observations about reality that you made today. Though sometimes we want that too. What do we want when we say, how was your day today? What are we really asking? Tell me some stories. Tell me some stories about what you experienced today. Tell me, some, tell me something that happened. We read books, we watch movies, we listen to music, and Often, the best forms of all of those things are rich and compelling stories, dynamic characters, conflict and tension, climax and resolution. Or as I've shared before of Kurt Vonnegut's definition of what a story is, he says that every story is a man in a hole. That's every story you've ever heard, is a man stuck in a hole. How did he get there? Can he get out? Will he get out? And Jesus is a master storyteller. His stories, often called, called parables, are some of the most famous short stories of all time. And his parable of the Good Samaritan that you heard just read is perhaps the most famous story of all time. From it, we have so-called Good Samaritan laws, that like someone can't be held uh, liable if they're trying to administer medical care to someone, even if they're not properly medically trained. We have, we just intuitively call people good Samaritans. Even people who don't have familiarity with ancient Near East culture or even the Bible say, that guy's a real good Samaritan. My grandmother lived at Good Samaritan Retirement Home in Texas. Uh, there's, there's a Good Samaritan re Retirement Community here in Albuquerque. I bet there's one in like every town in America. Just this last week on a very popular podcast, perhaps you like me uh, heard a two to three minute short ex exploration of this parable of the Good Samaritan, which was a surprise to me on like Thursday of this week as I've been like thinking about this parable all week long and studying and reading and even beginning to write. And I hear uh, someone, uh, someone who does not claim to be a Christian, like trying to like understand and think about the meaning of this parable this week. But what's the point of this parable? Is the point of the Good Samaritan to just be nice to those who need help? If someone has a flat tire, make sure that you pull over and help them change it. If someone is being neglected or ignored, get involved. Maybe, kind of. We won't do this with every parable that Jesus tells in Luke, but before we jump right in to the parable of the Good Samaritan, it might be a good idea to take just a minute to understand why Jesus teaches in this way in the first place. Why does he tell parables? What is a parable? The, the word, our English word parable comes from a Greek word that says is parabolo. It means like to throw alongside. Like if you were walking down the street and you threw some seed along the side of the road, that's what a parable is, to come alongside, to throw alongside. These parables, perhaps we might have learned in Sunday school class or something, are maybe just um, nice stories for kids, maybe sermon illustrations, analogies. One popular definition of a parable is a earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Well, the thing is about Jesus' parables is that many of them aren't nice stories at all, like the kinds of stories you probably wouldn't want to share with your kids. In Matthew, Jesus tells a story of a king who destroys a city entirely for speaking against him. 
In the following few chapters of Luke, we're going to see parables that Jesus is going to tell about a manager who cheats his master out of money, and then he's praised for it. He's praised for his deceit. A guy who is, another parable of a guy who is burning in judgment, begging for relief. So what are these stories, and why does Jesus tell them? Well, parables, we might say, are compelling stories that invite us in. They invite us into the story in order to divert our attention from the real world, to sneak past our prejudices. Think about the most famous Old Testament parable. Can you think of it? When is a a parable told in the Old Testament? King David has just manipulated this entire scheme. He has used his kingly power to take Bathsheba, and he has seen to it that her husband, Uriah, dies on the battlefield. And then the prophet Nathan enters into David's court, and he tells David a story, that there was once a rich man in Israel, and the rich man had tons of animals, he had sheep and cattle, and then there was a poor man. And this poor man had only one lamb, the most precious and beloved thing that he owned. He cared for it like one of his children. And then a traveler came into town, and the rich man wanted to throw a feast, but instead of making the meal from one of his innumerable animals, the rich man came and he stole the beloved lamb from the poor man, and he killed the lamb for the, for the meal. And we, the readers, outside of the story, can understand what Nathan the prophet is doing. The rich man in the story is David. And Nathan is confronting the king. Nathan could have just walked into the court and said, David, you have abused your kingly power. You have coveted and stolen. You are an adulterer. You are a murderer. But how might David reacted to that? We've already seen what David will do to protect himself. He might have just responded to Nathan saying, off with his head, get him out of here and have him killed. But do you see what Nathan did? David, he invites David into this story, and David begins to identify with the characters in this story, and then get angry at the rich man who stole from the poor man. And he gets angry, and then when Nathan, master storyteller that he is, sees that he has got David to identify and uh, see that what the rich man has done is evil, Nathan says, you're the man. You are the man. And David connects the world of the story to real life, and all David says in response is, I have sinned against the Lord. The listener willingly enters into the world of story, one of the story. One scholar of parables says that they are, parables are not moral stories intended to stand on their own to teach a universal lesson. Meaning, if you just grab the story out of the context for why Jesus or Nathan or any other biblical author or character tells the story, you'll likely miss the point entirely, which, by the way, I think is what happened in the podcast that I listened to this week. Like Nathan, Jesus understands that we are people who enter ourselves into the story. And then when we do that, Jesus can kind of like sneak past our preconceived notions about reality, sneak past our blind spots about ourselves and about the world. He can sneak past our tendency to live in empty and impractical doctrine. If we just ripped out the story of the rich man from Nathan, the rich man, a poor man, his beloved lamb, without the context of David and Uriah and Bathsheba, we've actually lost the meaning of the parable entirely. 
And yet Jesus and the gospel writers who place the parables where they do are using these stories to sneak past our preconceptions of the world and of ourselves. So tonight, with the parable of the Good Samaritan, we're going to try to identify what the preconceived notions are that Jesus is trying to sneak past and what he's trying to do by telling the story, how and why he tells the story. So we're going to think through this parable in three headings here. The first is the context of the parable the meaning of the parable, and the purpose of the parable. In other words, using Luke 10, we're going to ask the why, the what, and the now what. All right? So the context of the parable. Let's zoom out for a little wider context. Last week, we saw Jesus sending out the 72. He was setting the stage for sacrificial discipleship, and discipleship that might even extend well beyond expected geographic borders. Next week, with the famous story of Mary and Martha, following, followed by a teaching on prayer and then beyond, that, this is beginning a section that will really go till chapter 19 of Luke that is about normal, everyday discipleship. And so what's going on? After Jesus, through the 72 last week at the beginning of chapter 10, has announced judgment on northern towns like Capernaum and Bethsaida, after the 72 have come back excited about the power of God in and through them, after he has commended them and given them blessing that they have received and understood and trusted him as little children would, behold, verse 25, like seemingly out of nowhere, behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, immediately, Luke is giving us some hints that this guy might not be all that interested in learning. He first stood up. Disciples sit at the teacher's feet. So to just stand up in the first place is a bit, a move of pride. He is speaking in order to, Luke tells us, put Jesus to the test. Not to learn, but to test and or to trap Jesus as we will begin to see the Pharisees do ongoingly and regularly as we go through the Gospel of Luke. And then further down in verse 29, Luke gives us the real flashing red light that the lawyer is desiring to justify himself. Maybe the, the best way to understand that phrase is and desiring to virtue signal. He was virtue signaling. You know this phrase? I don't think anyone really ever said the word virtue signaling like a decade ago before social media, but it's how we post things merely so that other people will think that we are the right kind of person. Where your post costs you nothing and brings only social benefit. Oh yes, this person posted this. Or look, this person showed up at that event or used this hashtag or supports this candidate or that policy or whatever it is. Now, none of those things are necessarily bad and we can't know people's hearts, so it is likely very dangerous to ever accuse someone of virtue signaling. But Luke, who likely had the oral tradition of Jesus' retelling of the story, Jesus actually can see this guy's inner motivation. He, and he knows that this guy actually is virtue signaling. He is signaling to everyone around him and perhaps even signaling to himself that I am the right kind of person. But I'm ahead of myself. He asks, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to share in the resurrection on the final day of the Lord? To which Jesus says, let me answer your question with another question. What's written in the law? How do you interpret the law? the most important parts of the law. And the lawyer seems to actually understand the Torah. Jesus answers elsewhere with the exact same commandments in Matthew 22. 
When Jesus sums up the entirety of the law, he answers in the exact same way that this man answers here. The lawyer understands the law in the exact same way as Jesus. And Jesus, though seemingly understanding the man's intentions and motive, he says, yep, that's it. Just go do that then. Love the Lord with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Do that and live. But virtue signaling, even to himself, desiring to justify himself, the lawyer asks, and who, pray tell, is my neighbor? Now at best, let's give him the benefit of the doubt and assume that he is thinking through or about other Old Testament laws, perhaps laws about eating with Gentiles, about keeping himself ceremonially clean and not elevating or affirming those who are opposed to God, not trying to by his presence, affirm to people like the Romans that they are in right standing with God. So at best, maybe he's asking, and who, Jesus, is my neighbor? How can I spot those who belong to God like I do so that I can love the people of God well? I want to love the people of God well, and I don't want to affirm those who are not the people of God uh, in false assurance. And so how can I spot the people of God so I can love them well? How will I know who to love well? But maybe more realistically, he has just told Jesus that he understands the law as total love for God, heart, soul, strength, and mind. And now he's asking, even though I understand that to, the, the, to believe and understand and interpret the law is to love the Lord your God with all of your being, maximal self, now he's asking, and what is the bare minimum that is required? And this is what then Jesus begins to sneak, speak to and to sneak around. What is the bare minimum that God requires so that I can feel comfortable in knowing that I am justified before God? Well, let me tell you a story. If that's the context, this is the context from which Jesus begins to tell this so famous story of the Good Samaritan. What is the bare minimum that God requires so that I can feel comfortable in knowing that I'm right before God? That's the context. Now, let's look at the meaning of the parable itself and try to understand it. That's the context. What's the meaning? Let me tell you a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. This is a well-known and dangerous road. Jerusalem is about 2,600 feet above sea level, and Jericho is 800 feet below sea level. This road is a 17-mile road full of turns. It is descending very quickly, so it's full of turns and switchbacks, canyons and caves. It is well known for a place of violence and robbery. You do not walk alone on this road. It has one of the most notorious reputations out there. And so as soon as Jesus begins with, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, all of his hearers are like, uh-oh, what's going to happen here? And then sure enough, the man fell among robbers. And then importantly to our story, he is stripped naked and he is half dead. Why is this important? Not just because they took everything from him and he is humiliated, half dead and naked, but now any other future Jewish person that is coming along the road can't tell if he is a fellow Jew. He doesn't have clothes. He can't speak. And so Jesus goes on, verse 31, now by chance, in other words, what luck? By chance, what's, 
What's the lucky situation of the man who is on the side of the road? What luck? A priest was going down that road. But if the victim was Jewish, the priest would be obligated to help the man. But this man lies naked and unconscious, so there's no way for the priest to identify his ethnicity. Even worse, what if the man was actually dead? It's very difficult from, the side of the, or from up on the road to see on the side of the road if a half-dead man is actually dead or alive. If the priest approaches and then touches a dead man, now the priest would be ceremonially unclean. He's just spent the week purifying himself in, Jer- in Jerusalem, in the, in the temple. Now he's going to have to go back. He's going to have to turn around and go back to Jerusalem for another week-long purification process. And it would take time and money to arrange this. While ceremonially unclean, he nor his family would be able to eat from the tithes or even collect tithes. But all of that, assuming that the man is actually Jewish. This was a heavily traveled road, and if the man on the side of the road is Egyptian or is Greek or is Syrian or Phoenician, then the priest is not obligated to help him at all. So the priest, most likely, at least for a moment, perhaps thought about helping this man. But he ultimately decided that his ceremonial purity was too important to risk. His time, his money, his family's well-being is too important to risk. Good excuses. But he passes along the far side of the road so as not to come near him. But not to worry. Verse 32. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, okay, maybe he's going to be the one to help. The Levites, one of the 12 tribes, they they don't have land like the other 11 tribes, but they serve as temple assistants to the priests. And so knowing this road, perhaps the hearers of Jesus are thinking and imagining that this road, a long road that perhaps you can see down, perhaps even amongst the switchbacks and the curves that you can see for miles, the original hearers could have potentially understood this Levite to be following at a distance, but behind the priest and perhaps having seen the priest pass by this half-dying man on the side of the road, setting a precedent of not helping, the Levite does the same. Maybe we might consider this guy to be like the youth pastor following behind the pastor. And the youth pastor, seeing that the pastor didn't help, he decides, well, there are probably good reasons why the pastor didn't help him, so I guess I'll just follow his lead. I should follow in his footsteps. I should follow his wisdom. And so he too, the Levite, like the priest, passed by on the other side. The story is getting good now. Jesus is building the conflict with legit tension. The hearers are thinking, who will help this man? And I'm sure the original hearers are thinking, the lawyer is likely thinking, I I know where he's going with this. Jesus, being like an itinerant and traveling preacher, he's he's kind of like, he's kind of rock and roll and anti-establishment. He's against the priests and the Pharisees. So in his story, Jesus is setting this up really good. He's telling us, he's telling the hearers, the priests won't help, the Levite won't help. Who's going to be the third guy? Just the ordinary, everyday Jewish person. That will be the guy who will help. So the the lawyer's perhaps thinking, uh, I asked who's my neighbor, I see where he's going with this. It's any Jew in need. It's any of the people of Israel who find themselves in need. That's my neighbor. That's who I'm to love. I should be like the third man, the common Jewish person who in this story will be like a stand-in for one of Jesus' disciples. 
Maybe we could say like the priest passed by on the other side and then the Levite passed by on the other side. But one of my disciples, what it looks like to be one of my disciples, like this guy, Peter, then Peter walked down the road and he saw the half dying man and he cared for him and he showed him mercy. All right, I get where this is going. Go on, Jesus. Tell us that the third man, one of your disciples, yeah, yeah, we get it. Verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion. What in the absolute world has Jesus just done? Samaritans, the descendants of the former northern ten tribes of Israel, true Jewishness, those of Judah and Benjamin, the southern tribes of Judah, they hadn't drifted off into the utter rejection of God and into false worship like Israel in the north. Centuries ago, the Samaritans, historically Jewish brothers, but now interbred familially and culturally and religiously with the Assyrians. Now, here in this day of Jesus, they had only accepted the Torah, the first five books of Moses as the authoritative word of God. They rejected all of the other narratives about the judges and the kings. They do not accept the prophets and the wisdom literature as the authoritative word of God. They had their own temple in the north. They had their own holy city. Meeting with, talking with, and or ever eating with a Samaritan and Jesus' day for the Jews was just as good or just as bad as perhaps eating pork. Absolutely ceremonially unclean. Samaritans being repulsive to Jews. And yet this is the character that then Jesus enters the story with to help the beaten man. 10 to 20 years ago in American culture, it was pretty common to retell this story, the story of the Good Samaritan, with perhaps the Samaritan as like a, a Middle Eastern Arab man. Perhaps despite the Hamas attacks yesterday in Israel, maybe now though, where enemies are more clearly felt closer to home, perhaps you might, as you are beginning, as you try to contextualize this story, perhaps you can imagine the person that your social media feeds have trained you to be most repulsed by who out there gets your blood pressure highest? Who have you been, or who, who emotionally do you think that person does not deserve anything? If anything, they deserve my hatred, not my love. That you feel the greatest level of loathing against politically, culturally, and that's the person that Jesus puts in his story showing compassion to this man. The Samaritan cares for the man at initial expense to himself of his own oil and wine to care for the man's wounds. He then walks down the rest of the road toward the end while the beaten man gets to ride. He then pays even more money to care for the man at the end, telling the innkeeper that whatever it costs him to see that this man is healed and restored, he's good for it. He will pay whatever it costs. Now, story over, Jesus asks another question. Who which of these was a neighbor? Which of the three? Who was it? Who was the neighbor? He never answers the lawyer's question. But by getting the man to enter into the story himself, he gets the lawyer to a place where he understands and then answers rightly that what it means to be a neighbor is to, like the Samaritan, be one who shows mercy, even if the lawyer can't bring himself to say, the Samaritan. He has to call him just the one who showed mercy. 
To which Jesus says, yep, now you go and do likewise. That's what it means to love God and love neighbor. What is the bare minimum that God requires so that I can feel comfortable in knowing that I am justified before God? There is no minimum. There is no bare minimum. God actually requires all of you. God requires deep, sacrificial love for neighbor. He desires maximal faithfulness to him. Heart, soul, strength, and mind. Now go and do likewise. So if that's what this parable means, that to obey the law is to show mercy, to love and to show compassion to all across religious, across ethnic, across cultural boundaries, even toward your enemies. Now how? How in the world? That is a very difficult ask. It was difficult for the lawyer. Presumably, he rejects this call of Jesus. But this call to the lawyer is equally difficult for us. So finally, now what? What is the purpose of this parable? What does Jesus actually want us to take from this parable? The purpose of the parable. Many throughout the centuries have taken Jesus' last words here of go and do likewise as the obviously clear and main point of all this. The podcast episode I mentioned earlier by using this parable defined sin as this. Sin is the failure to bother to care. Sin is indifference. Like the priest and the Levite, we can live our lives in indifference to suffering and thus ignore the weightier things of the law. And there is good scriptural grounding for that. The Old Testament prophets are just relentless in their calling of Israel to care for the weak, to care for the marginalized, the victimized, and the oppressed. You cannot just hide behind religious practice if you do not love your neighbor in mercy and in compassion. We used Isaiah 1 tonight as our confession of sin, where God tells Israel, Israel that he has had it. He is done with Israel's sacrifices, their feasts, their vain prayers. Instead, in Isaiah 1, God through Isaiah calls Israel to stop it with all of this religious stuff and wash yourself, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Jesus regularly and ongoingly carries on this pro prophetic tradition of calling religion that does, not call, that does not love neighbor and to show mercy to neighbor as worthless. And there is certainly much for us to consider and to be challenged by here in this parable in that vein. Anytime Jesus says, go and do likewise, we should stop and slowly reflect on the scenarios and times in our lives where we, even with good excuses in mind, pass by on the other side of the road. Now, just because the priest and the Levite made decent excuses and were seemingly condemned for these excuses, I don't think that Jesus prescribes in the year 2023 an equal response for you as that of the Samaritan each and every time you see someone on the side of the road seemingly in need. I know many of you carry snack and toiletry bags in your car to hand out on the, site, on the street corners. And to cultivate compassion, to cultivate mercy in your heart, in obedience to your own conscience, you should keep doing that, and in fact, many of us should start. 
but in a time of social services, we're within walking distance of right here in this building. Three meals a day are available seven days a week. Growing in discernment and growing in wisdom is equally commended by Jesus alongside growing in mercy and in compassion. I'm so thankful for books like When Helping Hurts, which have helped the church think wisely about social ministries and thinking through in, in these kinds of decisions and wisdom and discernment. And yet, I think that a cost of this is to perhaps cultivate within us conclusions that these are the types of people that I do love. These are the types of people that I do help. And these are the people, or the types of people that I do not love or help. Not just with people asking for money on corners. Certainly that's true. But perhaps even more widely in thinking about wider cultural issues. Perhaps even trying to cultivate within our own hearts openness to building relationships with others across cultural lines, political lines, across cultural and political lines and stances on issues, issues like immigration, issues which could then harden lines of ethnic or racial pride, stances on issues of LGBT issues, which have been so obviously politicized, and whereas yet, like five years ago, I don't think many of us would have ever imagined in our own hearts something like, I will not associate, I will not love or show compassion toward those that I disagree with here. Even if I have come to these conclusions with well-informed biblical conviction. I do not, I cannot, by my mere presence, love, compassion, attempt or even give the illusion of my affirming or giving false assurance. I cannot be kind to these kinds of people. And in hardening anger, then just pass by on the other side of the road to avoid these kinds of conversations, to avoid these kinds of people who are perhaps politicized in ways that make us uncomfortable, make us angry, make us defensive. And like Jonah, wanting to move in the opposite direction of so-called enemies because we assume that these kinds of people, for whatever issue and for whatever conviction, do not deserve my love, do not deserve God's love. So since Jesus is challenging the lawyer to consider every person to be his neighbor, that there is no such thing as a bare minimum for the kind of people that you are to love, we should ask of all people in every scenario in which we encounter another human being, how should I love this neighbor. And some people in seemingly similar circumstances might dictate different responses to that question. That requires an ongoing walking by the Spirit wisdom of perhaps buying a meal for someone one day and on the next walking by. Of, per, of maybe inviting someone that I disagree with over for dinner for the chance to build friendship, and yet, in that deepening friendship, because they are a neighbor worthy of love, speaking the truth to show what God has revealed and what he desires. There is a clear go and do likewise here, and we should absolutely consider the practical takeaways for our lives. When we only care about people's spiritual needs and not their physical, there is an understandable disconnect, like in Isaiah 1. And both God and the world can sniff out hypocrisy. A people who have received the generous and sacrificial grace of God and then say, no, I have no more generosity to give. 
That is something, generosity, that is something that I only receive. I do not give that away. Or I only give away to people who look like me, act like me, think like me, or in my estimation, deserve it. And if and when that is true in our own hearts, there might actually be a real disconnect behind the kind of grace that we assume that we understand and that we assume that we have received. Maybe we haven't. And I think that this is actually the point of this parable put in the context where Luke puts it. This story is not a system of justification, is not an explanation of salvation. That those who show mercy to others or are kind to the suffering, they are the people who will receive the love of God. This isn't even necessarily a practical how-to list for what you should do when you encounter suffering. The parable of the Good Samaritan is about exposing hypocrisy. The exposing of those who would justify themselves. Who would virtue signal to all and even to their own hearts that by doing the bare minimum, I am right before God. I actually don't have to give him all of me. I mean, why does Jesus pick a Samaritan for his story in the first place? Why does he do that? We've seen in other places, most especially John 4, where Jesus encounters a Samaritan woman at the well, that he thinks that Samaritans are absolutely wrong in their religious thought and in their practice. They should stop. They should come to the right worship of the God of Israel. And so he is not saying that the Samaritan in his parable is just good to go before the Lord. All you need to do is just keep showing mercy and that's all that is required. He is loving his neighbor as himself. He should also love the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, strength, and mind as God has revealed to him. But what Jesus is doing is he's making an argument from the lesser to the greater. Do you know what I mean by this? He does this all the time. Paul does this all the time. Maybe one example that Jesus gives is, he says, consider the birds and the flowers. He's saying, these things over here, these lesser things, if God cares for these lesser things over here, like birds and flowers, with such care, with such attention, then how will he not care for the greater thing? You, his children, his people. If he cares for these things in this way, how much more will he care for you, his people, in this way, the lesser to the greater? If the Samaritan, who is culturally and religiously confused about the scriptures and about the temple, if he loves those who need mercy, then how much more should you, O Israel, show mercy? Israel was consistently hard-hearted, consistently disobedient, and yet God sovereignly elected them to worship him. He has been slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, compassionate and abundantly merciful to the people of Israel. If anyone should understand the concept of mercy and of showing compassion, it should be them. This is what Jesus seems to be doing in not really answering the lawyer's question. What do I have to do is the lawyer's question. And Jesus seems to answer, what kind of person are you? He does not give him a checklist. What do I have to do? The answer is, what kind of person are you? It's not an accident that Luke will put the story of Mary and Martha right after this. Here is where the rubber meets the road for the Christian. 
Peter, in 1 Peter 2, says that we, just like Israel, were not a people. We were not a people. We, people of God, were once not a people, now we are God's people. We, just like Israel, had not received mercy, and now, just like the man on the road, we have received mercy. If anyone should understand the concept of mercy and of showing compassion toward anyone around me, it should be me. A sinful wretch who loves himself more than God, who is repeatedly hard-hearted, disobedient, and yet God is so faithful and kind. He loves me still, so much so that he gave his only son to live the life that I should have lived and to die the death that I should have died so that we might become sons of God. He loved us, we then love others. We love because he first loved us. If this is a story just about being merciful, like many humans intuitively know how to be merciful. Like I think many people take this story and say, hey, just tap into the inherent uh, goodness within. You have this inherent desire to be merciful to those. Stop being distracted by all of this religion. Just tap into the inherent goodness within and just be kind and merciful to your neighbor. That's what Jesus is trying to teach you. No. If that's the case, then the cross of Christ is not needed at all. The standard that God expects and demands is total and comprehensive love. You do not have inherent goodness to tap into. There is nothing within to save. Salvation must come from without, from outside. Heart, soul, strength, and mind is impossible from within. And so to swing back around to from where we started when we defined, or when we let Kurt Vonnegut define what a story is, who is the man in the hole? I think so often we read this story and say, well, obviously it's the man on the side of the road. And then we take a story like this and we walk outside and we say, see all these people in holes outside and we think, how can we get them out of the hole? But if we zoom in or zoom out and get this story in context, who's the man of the hole? It's the lawyer. The lawyer is stuck and he cannot get out. He's stuck in a hole of self-worship. He's stuck in a hole of legalistic obedience that has instead built walls of keeping out those whom he thinks he doesn't have to love, seeking to justify himself, virtue signaling to the world and to himself that I am the right kind of person, and he's stuck. If he is the right kind of person, then he has no need for grace. He has no need for the compassion of God, for the mercy of God, because he has done the work himself. And so how can the man get out of, his, uh, of the hole? He can't. He doesn't even realize he's in a hole. How do we become the kind of person who is motivated from the inside out to greater mercy, to greater compassion and love, who is able to meet the standard of righteousness required by the law, not by our righteousness, but by the righteousness of Christ? Well, I don't think it's totally wise to look for allegorical connections in all of Jesus' parables, certainly not in this one, for like every single thing that happens in the story. Jesus will, at the end of Luke's gospel, tell his disciples that all of the scripture is about him. The entirety of Israel's story and is about Jesus, and as the first several centuries of Christian interpreters understood this parable, 
that Jesus is actually the Good Samaritan. Look at how patient, how merciful, how sacrificial the Good Samaritan is. Look at how much he loves this man who doesn't even ask for help, doesn't know the Samaritan, possibly doesn't even thank him. Look at how he binds the man's wounds and delivers him to a place of healing. And so while Jesus may not have intended for the lawyer or the immediate hearers on this day to think about Jesus' coming sacrifice in Jerusalem, we, being a people outside of the completed canon and on this side of the cross of Christ, are able to benefit in the full understanding of what this story is about, that Jesus has come to bind wounds. He has come to heal sin, forgive sin, and to deliver to a place of healing. And so any walls or boundaries that we have set up to say, I do not have to love that person, or I do not have to have compassion for people like that, or for for whatever reason it may be, because we are so good at making excuses, the gospel of Christ comes to blow up and to obliterate those walls and boundaries. Because we understand, unlike the priest and the Levite who thought they actually deserve God's love and other people do not, did you deserve God's love? Did you, Christian, deserve the grace of Christ? Do you deserve anything? The next beat of your heart, do you deserve it? We deserve nothing. Every good and perfect gift, anything good that you experience today is a gracious gift of God. Can you earn his acceptance and love both initially or can you keep his acceptance and love ongoingly? No. Dressed by his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground, including our own effort, is sinking sand. A lawyer came to Jesus asking what's the minimum required to inherit eternal life. Wrong question. Now that Jesus has given away all, we, united to his life and death and resurrection, the question is not who is my neighbor, the question is who are you in Christ? What kind of person are you? And how, being united to Jesus, how does that change your relationship to every other human nearby and around you? The question is not who is my neighbor, the question is who is not my neighbor? No one. Now you'll notice... I've danced around some practical realities, but I haven't actually given you a ton of like practical application for like the what now, what you should do when we leave this building. And I hesitate to prescribe. I I hesitate to say, this is what you must do. There are more needs in this city than can be met in like a thousand lifetimes of the people in this room. It is often a dark, a sick, a despondent place. And I don't want to invert the lawyer's question of what is the bare minimum and then prescribe to you an actual practical new maximum that being a faithful Christian requires like 50 hours of community service or nonprofit work on top of your day job and a part of your care for the local church or something like that. But in reflecting on this parable and in looking to Jesus, in knowing him, in loving him, in trusting him, in becoming like him, are you known for your mercy and your compassion? Not in a virtue signaling kind of way that you are the right kind of person, but do you just freely give of yourself? 
Are we as a church known for our love of God, our love of people? Often love will come in words of clarity, in words of challenge, calls to repentance. Perhaps just as often it will look like nods, eye contact, smiles, hellos in conversations, meals, invitations, sacrificial giving of time and of money, of welcoming generosity. And I don't know how that practically plays out for you in every single situation and scenario in person in your life. This requires wisdom and discernment. But he has healed our wounds. He has brought us to a place of healing. We love because he first loved us. Now go and do likewise. Not in an effort to justify yourself, but because you have been made justified. He has healed you from the inside out. Who do you love? No, wrong question. Who am I? Who is Jesus? To whom do I belong? I belong to him. He has made me for his glory. He has made me for my neighbor. Now go and do likewise. The story is going somewhere. We cannot take this parable out of context and just say, go and do likewise, and then just attempt now to justify yourself in the going and doing likewise. This place, this story, is heading to a bloody cross on the Mount of the Skull, the place of his death that he has died for us, but it is also then moving to his glorious resurrection. And because he lives in this world of loss and suffering and of questioning and of conflict, external and internal, we have meaning, we have purpose, we have a world in need of love. We have a world in need of hearing the good news of Jesus. Might we be his people to go and do likewise? Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful that you have come to us in grace and compassion, that you have not dealt with us as we deserve, that you have not dealt with us in immediate justice as we deserve for our idolatry, for our self-worship, for our rejection of you, but that you have come not for your friends, but for your enemies that you have shown grace and kindness to those who had previously rejected you and that you have wooed them by your love. You have spoken words of life by your spirit, that you have made dead people alive. Help us to understand your people being made alive. Help us to understand this life that you have called us into, to love you more and more with our whole heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Might we be these people individually. Might we be these people corporately as your church. Might this be our reputation. People of God, people of the grace, kindness, mercy, and compassion of our God. And we pray that as we go from here, many might come to know and believe, to trust in and to receive the grace of Christ, to have lives transformed from death to life. We pray these things for their good, for our joy, for our good, and for the glory of our King Jesus, we pray. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.